<laughs> what was that? That was a slate. That's what they call it. It, it sounded slate. like you took your office apart. Yeah. Just gave the desk a big whack. You did. Hi, I'm George Techmanchov here with Steve the Big Gap Anderson for another Easton Target Archery Podcast, number 202. We've 202. Come a long ways. We have. And it's been a little while since our last podcast. I apologize for that, folks, but I've been uh, traveling a bit. Steve's been a busy guy, too. Uh, did you go to the uh, ASA? Did you go to that event? I did. Okay, so we can talk about that at Skosh. Sure. And also, uh, I've just gotten back from Japan. I was at the um, high school selection event, the Senbatsu, and I got there in time, perfect timing, for the cherry blossoms to bloom. Very exciting. Uh, you know, considering that it's about a week early, you know, global warming has its benefits. That reminds me of one time when I was on the Silver Creek in the Sun Valley, Idaho area. Yeah. And the brown drake hatch happened a week early. Those are the bugs and that... I caught it. And that's when you want to be fly fishing? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You just have a blanket of brown drakes floating down the... So the fish the are going creek. nuts. Yeah, fish go crazy. They'll fall for your fly anytime. That's one of the problems is you have so many things in the water, they don't necessarily need to... They don't key in on yours. Okay. So for a, a long time, you just see fish everywhere. Uh-huh. What I think you want to do is hit like a gap where there's not a billion bugs. And then at the tail end of that, when it starts slowing down and the bugs become a little more sparse on the water, that's when you have an opportunity. Are those those bugs that only live for like a day? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know the entomology too yeah. well, but... Well, the trout yeah. seem to appreciate them. Yeah, but anyhow, same as your week early... Cherry blossoms. Well, unfortunately, just like the, what were the brown drakes? Brown drakes. Just like the brown drakes, the sakura, the cherry blossoms, they only last a short time. And they're gone. And they're gone. So if it's raining or it's windy, you know, you get this, uh, you get these piles of of, of pink petals like like snowdrifts, you know. And then I come back from, I come back from this this idyllic situation to a foot of snow here in Salt Lake City. (laughs) You came back to snowdrifts. What the heck happened? Yeah. You know? We're at... I think it's done. I think winter's over now. I think you're right. However, it got its last blast in just oh, yeah, in the last blasted, 24 yeah. hours. I mean, it's... For those who are unaware, we have set the record for snowfall and rain... Uh, snow water accumulations. Not that we it. didn't need it. No, we'd need 10 years of this. Right. But, but the problem is... Yeah. What's going to happen next weekend when it's 60 degrees and 70 degrees? Yeah, we're going to be underwater. It could get ugly. We'll see. But this is supposed to be about target archery. Oh, yeah. And we're going to bring this full circle back to discuss target archery. People always like to talk about the weather. They do. And, uh, you know, since since we're here just talking, you know, we can indulge. But what we were getting at is the start of cherry blossoms is the start of outdoor season. It is. And I was privileged to bring with me to Japan the president of Easton, Aaron Lucky. His first, uh, his first trip. So I, I tried to tell him, you have no idea how lucky you are to be able to come to Japan and see the cherry blossoms on your very first visit. Because sometimes it's hit or miss. Right. You know, um, when you go to the Senbatsu, usually the, the actual cherry blossom blooms a week later. So oftentimes I'd only catch a, you know, just the beginning of it and then I'd have to fly out. It's only a couple times, and all the times I've been to Japan that I've actually been there for the full duration of the cherry blossoms. So, you know. And so uh, Aaron um, got to see the whole thing and visit all of Easton's customers and um, 
you know, we had a great time. It was really a good event. And uh, thanks go out to our, our good friend Yoshi Komatsu from Japan Archery Magazine. Um, pretty much saved our bacon on the last day when our flight got canceled by Delta. And Delta was like, well, sorry, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. We've got no hotel for you. And we'll see you tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was that was uh, in- interesting. Well, try getting a hotel room in Tokyo at one o'clock in the morning, when most of the hotels, for whatever reason, were already booked. Yoshi came through. He uh, found us a place to stay, and we worked. Uh, we worked an extra day in Japan and flew back. Hmm. So yeah, I was not impressed with Delta though. You know what? I am impressed by the name of the tournament, Senbatsu. That Senbatsu. sounds like. Kind of sounds sinister a little bit. Oh yeah, like a yeah, like a like, like like a like a RKO films movie monster kind of sinister uh, or something else. More like like oh I'm going to the Senbatsu. It almost feels like you're going to like face your death. I possibly, see. I you see. Know? It's like a test of of uh, yeah a test courage of or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, it kind of is. We're it's, gonna put him through a Senbatsu. Oh no, a Senbatsu. Not a Senbatsu. Yeah. <laughs> But what is, so maybe explain what the Senbatsu, Senbatsu is. Senbatsu is the culmination of your high school archery career. Basically, it's the selection tournament where the very best high school shooters in the country gather to compete. They shoot a 70-meter qualification round, and then they have a head-to-head. And the winner of the Senbatsu um, is a very prestigious thing. Um, all of the top universities in Japan that have archery programs will send scouts. So, for example... Takahara Furukawa, the multi-medalist Olympian, is also a coach for Kindai University, which generates about 80%, 90% of the national team members in Japan. He came out there to scout, them up? to scout and to you know talk to parents and encourage them to come to his school. Turns out the winners, both male and female, are part of Kindai University's high school feeder system. Mm. So, you know, because there's high schools that are attached to big universities. Okay. So the kids often will transfer from the high school into the university, right? Just makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So um, in this case, the two winners probably are destined to go on to Kindai University and probably going to represent Japan, you know, um, in the next few years as national team members and maybe even in the Los Angeles Olympic Games for all we know. And that's... um, that is how that works. That that is a very supportive system for archery in that country. Recurve archery, I'll point out. That's that's the Simbatsu for you. Yep. Now, one thing that we're working on um, is kind of like what we're working on in Korea, which is introduction of compound uh, into the schools in in Japan, and uh, that's moving forward. That's kind of cool to say that you know that is a, a thing and it's moving forward. But there's a lot more work to do to get it up and running because I did a seminar um, for about 40 of those coaches and scouts and that sort of thing. It was Aaron's observation that the Hoyt Stratos that I was passing around the room was the very first time some of these <laughs> folks had ever touched a compound bow. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Hey, you know, maybe it's an emerging market then. Well, whether it is or it isn't, the reality is it's looking more and more like Los Angeles is going to have some kind of a compound event. And it's in everybody's interest to have shooters ready for it, right? 
Right. Especially in countries like Japan, where compound has not traditionally been supported in any way. They're kind of behind the curve. They are very much behind the curve. Whereas Korea, as we know, you know, came here to Salt Lake City, brought their national team in, worked directly with the engineers at Easton and Hoyt, uh, have gone all in on compound. You know, a full team, same number of shooters on their team as they have for the recurve. Mm -hmm. They're starting up a school program. They're going to have... Honestly, you know, you've seen it, Steve, firsthand. They're going to be very competitive in a short time. They already are. So I'd just like to see, you know, a few other countries that haven't done that work at least have the opportunity to try. So that's one purpose for for why I was in Japan with a couple of compound bows on this trip. Very nice. Well, let's hope that uh, there's some fruit born from your effort. Yeah, hope so. And in the meantime, there's plenty of other things going on in archery as we actually do get into the outdoor season, including the European Grand Prix taking place in, uh, in the UK. And, and if anything, Steve, in our last podcast, you talked about your predictions for the World Championship. And the developments in this particular European Grand Prix, well, I'll tell you what, they bode well for you to be right about what you predicted for the home team for the Berlin World Championship. I really need to start gambling on this stuff. Well, maybe you're not wrong. Because uh, Katharina Bauer and um, and uh, Florian Unruh, they were able to sweep the recurve qualification at that event. They, they picked up top places in men's and women's individual and team and mixed team. Just, they got it all. They're rolling. They're rolling, you know. Um, we talked about... Uh, we talk, where did we talk about Oliver Hayden, their coach? Was it on here? I think it was on the last podcast, yeah. We talked about oh, Oliver. Yeah. He might be on to some stuff. Yeah, and know? Mark. And, you know, those guys, they are they're experienced. And the other thing is, again, I, I think I'll make this point one more time. You're looking at a situation where Germany is now the largest archery country in the world from the number of participants who are members of the Deutsche Schützenbund. That's right. I know we talked about it here because I asked you to repeat that. That's right. So so they've actually got more archers than even France, which traditionally since 92 has been the biggest federation. France has lost their fastball a little bit. No, no, there, no. Yeah. France still has about Staying the same members. number. Just Germany's growing. Germany has grown beyond France. It's not that France shrunk. It's just that Germany has increased. Huh. I, I, I'm, I'm giving credit to Lisa Unruh for a lot of that to be honest with you. Not to mention performances from some of their luminaries at the Tokyo Olympic Games. You know like Michelle Kropin and uh, Lisa and you know a number of other shooters, Katharina Uh, so you know Florian did well too so you're looking at a situation I think where archery uh, really has momentum in Germany. That's really good very good. Yeah. Where was the European Grand Prix? At Little Shaw in the GBR. Shaw. I saw they're building place. some new archery center. There. Yeah. yeah. The archery GB folks are building a new center. Um, it, I don't know much about it to be honest with you, but uh, it looks like it looks like a nice permanent facility, uh, like a, a performance center where they can bring in teams and uh, they can have. Um, a 70-meter indoor shooting range, which is really handy when you're in a windy place like GBR can be or a rainy place like that. Um, they're going to have space for, I don't know, something like uh, 30 targets indoors 
to shoot hmm. 70 meters, which is pretty darn good. Yeah. And, it's nice uh, to see because uh, for, you know, the longest, I don't know, it just seems like there hasn't been. The last big center <sighs> built was the one in Lausanne. I, well, what I was getting at more is it, it seems that archery kind of gets constantly eaten away at by, you know, in terms of the support from Olympic organizations and things like that. They're always kind of picking away at archery and then. Yeah, well, not this time because the British, uh, the the British, uh, I guess, Archery GB is the, uh, how do I put this? It's being funded by Sport England and UK Sport, which I guess is their governing bodies for all their Olympic sports. And it's, uh, they're spending a lot. They're spending about $5 million on this thing. Um, And it seems that once it's complete, it's going to be the new home of the British Olympic and Paralympic squads. So... Well, very cool. Yeah, very cool. And it looks like a really nice facility. So I think it's great that they've got that. Um, You know, the big deal, of course, is to qualify for the Paris 2024 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And the qualification period, you know, it starts this summer. Starts with now now is the time. And uh, also some interesting stuff going on with our friend Mete Gadzos. Looks like he's had some good results as he is uh, involved in this European Grand Prix. Looks like he's off to a good start for the season, or at least a confident one. So we'll see how things develop. Uh, you know, as we speak right now, that thing's still going on. But you know, Meta. A few days ago, he um, he did very well in a tournament in Turkey. He shot at the, uh, I believe it's the Spring Arrows event there. Yeah, I saw they had something going on there. Yeah, and he beat Marcus de Almeida in the uh, final. So that is a uh, a big win for for Meta. Uh, to start off the season. Not a bad plan. A little momentum is a good thing. It seems like a lot of these nations have been going to Turkey quite a bit this winter. Yeah, it's true. The weather is generally pretty good. Right. They can go shoot there all year and have yeah. no issues. And But yeah, I've seen Germany go there a couple times. I want to say GBR has maybe gone there. But there, there seems to be a lot of these nations making it their remote winter training grounds. You know, and and um, it's cool that it's cool that they have that opportunity and to get to go do that. And you know, it only it only makes you better when you get out of your comfort zone and go do your thing elsewhere. You know, and then they'll go compete at that same facility for uh, World Cup. And you know, you familiarize yourself with the field and how the wind works. You can usually get pretty darn good at a place. People don't always give respect to that. They think you know. Outdoor archery is outdoor archery, and whatever it is on that particular day is what it is. But you kind of learn the the lay of the land a little bit. You learn how the wind is depending on what you're hearing, you know. You learn how it'll affect you depending on what lane you're in because that certainly makes a difference. But, you know, it just makes you a better gauge of it. So let's switch gears and talk about the event you went to. Yeah. So that was in Alabama? It was a, yeah, it was at Fort Benning. So... So Alabama, Georgia line, yeah. but uh, yeah. Speaking of 3D, you know we had some we had some wind a little bit on the first day. Oh yeah, you're in the trees, so it's never really that bad. But and they hold umbrellas for each other to help block the wind, right? They can, yeah. yeah. Usually you don't, but what what I'll tell you though is that for an archer like me who grew up or who you know cut his teeth shooting 50 meter outdoors with an Easton X10. Uh, it's a lot different when you're shooting a Super Drive 25, a lighter, 
much larger diameter arrow and there's a little bit of wind so yeah, not shooting th- as far but right you don't think you think oh that's not very far and it doesn't feel like a lot of wind but man they can really move in the wind those yeah. large arrows so yeah. it, it makes you appreciate how that works and as i said you know you understand what wind sounds like and how a heavier wind sounds and what that does to your arrow and at 50 meters you very much are on a grid pattern so you know all right this is a wind where i'm probably aiming edge of 10 or this is a wind where i'm aiming mid nine you Hmm. know and you can kind of get a feel for that and it becomes part of you and part of your shot and then you go out in the in the trees where now that wind is a lot louder Mm -hmm. typically Um, less influential potentially yes but then you switch to a a bigger lighter arrow and the distance gets shortened up and then the thing ends up moving further than you would expect anyways it's very it's kind of crazy you know just having to contend with that it's a whole it's a whole different game from a wind standpoint so for those you know shooting target archery um there's a little bit of insight for you on wind in 3d although it's not as it's not something we typically associate to 3d just because you're in cover yeah in field archery, I've always considered the wind as part of the game because we have those 60-meter shots. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, there is a factor there, especially if you're shooting over water. Um, so yes. you, you, you feel the tree. You look at the trees. I, my tools have always been my ears and my eyes for figuring out the wind, obviously. Yep. And the trees, how they move, you know, what's going on with the trees is a big deal. If you don't have certain cues, like you're shooting in the desert in Arizona, it can be really tough. Yeah. You know? Like at Arizona Cup, you can look at the flag on the left side of the field, the flag on the right side of the field, and then go all the way over to the American flag behind them and have three different directions. I was going to say the same thing. It's really tough. Three different directions is not an exaggeration. You get a tumbling wind sometimes, too, and that Mm -hmm. that's... Now, if you're really out of luck, you have a dust devil come across while you're trying to shoot. You know? Had that twice, yep. And that can really wreak havoc with the targets and a lot of other stuff. But, you know, uh, at the end of the day, springtime, uh, wherever you are, springtime is often going to be windy. And learning the wind, even if you're shooting X-10s, you got to learn the wind to some degree. It's going to be a factor, mm-hmm. you know. Because, let's face it, if you're on the field and you're shooting competitively at a high-level event, X-10s are the best solution for the wind, but guess what? Everybody's got them. Yeah. So it's kind of an equalizer in that regard, but you still got to be able to play the wind. It's, uh, and as I said, as you change fields, you'll you'll get a different perception of it, and things are just different. And uh, that's why it's important to, you know, go and, if you can, familiarize yourself at, at minimum by getting a practice day in. When I was first starting the 50-meter game, I was trying to game vacation days and things like that into it. So I'd often skip practice day and just show up and shoot 50 meters because, you know, it's not hard to figure out. You set your sights 50 meters and go. Um, But the more you familiarize yourself with the location, the better, you know. So that's why you see stuff like a test event for the Olympics that never gets missed or, um, you know, a a team traveling to go shoot a random small event, but it's at a key location, you know, like they're not, they're not going to miss teams are not going to miss the Berlin world cup two years ahead of the Berlin world championships because it's, it's pivotal. Yeah. Especially if the facilities are similar. Right. But, Speaking yeah. of facilities, 
Did you know there will not be any air conditioning at the Paris Olympic Games Athlete Village? There won't be any air conditioning. In the interest of, apparently, environmental friendliness. Got to go green. Stay warm. You're going to have to use the metro to get around. There won't be a fleet of cars taking people around. You're going to have to use the metro. And that implies that there's going to be some folks who are used to certain things are going to have to reset their expectations. My only concern about it, really, honestly, is the Paralympians. What's going to happen when they're, you know, August in Paris can be pretty warm. And some Paralympians have trouble regulating their body mm-hmm. temperatures. Yes. So that, that's my only concern about it. You know, could be could be an interesting condition. Uh, it's just something that'll get talked about for, yeah. you know, it, it's a needless point of contention on the games. You know how every Olympics kind of has its thing where everyone's Everyone. mad about? Yeah. What were they mad about for Japan? I don't know. Um, well, by the time Japan actually happened, I think everybody was just happy it was going to happen. Right. We had a, the world that was in a position to host the if, Olympics. If the Olympic Games in Tokyo had taken place as scheduled, I think it might have come off as one of the most perfect but weren't they mad about the finances to it or something? In yeah, well, that's always the case for Olympic yeah. Games. You know, I mean, let's face it. That's always going to be an issue. And until, you know, if IOC ever decided, okay, here are the four cities where we're going to have the Olympics in perpetuity, or one place even. Um, but that's not the model. That's not the business model for the thing. They're not going to do that. With that said, though... Um, yeah, every Olympics has its thing. You're not wrong. Uh, I remember in Sydney, right, 2000 Olympic Games, predictions of, oh, traffic will be horrendous. It wasn't. Traffic wasn't horrendous at all. Sydney was great. Hmm. I remember Beijing. Oh, the pollution's going to kill you. And no, while you could, actually, you could look at the sun without sunglasses anytime you wanted to because of the amount of haze in the air, it was fine. You know, transport was great. People were wonderful to work with. Beijing was fine. Um, London, again, predictions of doom and gloom. Traffic will be (laughs) terrible. You know what? I went to six Olympic Games as the announcer. London was the best ever. London was awesome. The people were great. And in spite of the fact that I stepped on the grass at Lord's Cricket Ground and John Knott almost killed me, it was an awesome event. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, Rio was the Zika virus. Everyone was going to get oh, Zika yeah, yeah. virus. Yeah, nobody got Zika virus. Well, and I remember then they said there was no mosquitoes. Like, oh, there's no mosquitoes here. And I remember at the finals, Juan Carlos killing mosquitoes with one of those electric tennis rackets. That's it's right. really awesome. So. Yeah, but that, you know, every one of the Olympic Games is its own thing. It's yeah, its they're mad animal. about something, you yeah. know. What was 2000? Well, 2004 was Greece. It was probably the finances, right? Uh, 2004, actually, no. It was the lack of being worried about the finances that was their problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, the, the, and, and, and my mother's Greek, so before any Greeks out there get mad at me, imiteramu ine apotinkriti, okay? So I don't want to hear about it. But the Greeks habitually, the habitual thing with Greeks is, okay, we'll take care of it. It'll, it'll be okay. We'll take care of it right up to the last minute. Everything's last minute, uh, okay? And, and there are some other cultures that are accused of the same kind so of... So they, they weren't going to be prepared is what it was. Yeah, they, weren't, they were not prepared. Right up until... I mean, Jim, Jim Easton was moving stuff around on the field. What? Like 
the day before practice. You know, Greg was about ready to hire a graffiti guy to come and decorate the backdrop because they didn't have the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when Jim Easton is moving pieces of plywood around. Yeah, to build the structure. Okay, now he's always been a leader and somebody leads from the front, just like Greg. You know, that's where Greg probably got it. And you're looking at it, you know, from that perspective. But let me tell you, Juan Carlos, who ran those Olympic Games, had his hands full. He, mm. the, those games would not have been pulled off without Juan Carlos. I can tell you huh. right now. So, yeah, the Greeks, the wonderful folks, of course, you know. And like I said, imitermo ine apotinkriti. However, <laughs> they have a certain amount of idiosyncratic behavior that, that doesn't lend itself to high-speed efficiency at times. I'll just leave it at that. That's eh, what it is. It is what it is. But every Olympics has got its thing, you know. Uh, Barcelona, yeah. same deal, right? Barcelona had, had a lot of, uh, you know what the, the key, the, the catchphrase of Barcelona was, it's impossible if you ask for anything out of the ordinary, impossible. That was the one English word everybody seemed to have down. <laughs> impossible. Impossible. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, that, you know, exp- explains a lot of stuff. When we go to Europe, a lot of people ask us if they say it's possible. Like, is it possible? Yeah, but if they say it's possible, they mean no. <laughs> yeah. What they're always asking us, is it possible yeah. to take this free sticker or whatever we have. Oh, well, that, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they say it's possible and it's a question. Yeah. yeah, Can I take this or can I do this? And the answer in that case, of course, is yes. Right. But it's funny how the word possible gets played around. Now, you've been to Japan. You know this, maybe. If somebody in Japan says maybe yes. That means no. Absolutely. (laughs) So that's uh, like Linda always said, my wife is from Mexico. Linda always says people will always say, like if you invite them to a barbecue, they'll say, Oh, yeah, we'll be there. And then they never, like, they say that no matter what. Because it's the social grease, you know. It's the thing that allows you to keep the social relationship going without the difficult part of going, hmm, I'm a little, oh, that's the other thing. If you're in Japan and you ask a question and somebody answers by inhaling through their teeth before answering you, that is an absolute no. Huh. I'm just, so you know, that's just... Little cues that you get yeah. in different cultures. Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, I, I remember in Japan, it was uh, another thing that popped up. You know, the athletes talking about the cardboard beds. And their bed frames were made of a cardboard structure. And then turns out they were kind of cool, but, you know, the, the Olympic athletes who want to do Olympic athlete things who weren't allowed to do Olympic athlete things because it was a pandemic. Yeah, they were concerned about the bed. So <laughs> I don't know if we want to go there, but okay. We didn't. Yeah, we didn't uh, cross the line. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're fine. I'm, I'm just saying. Okay, well, you know what? At Anyhow. the end of the day, I think that uh, it's going to be a great Olympic Games in Paris, but uh, it's going to have its own stories, just like all the other ones. The one thing that I think that uh, nobody's going to complain about will be a noisy air conditioner. Well. Uh, they've got a year to cave on that and put in some I had to stay. I had to stay in an unair conditioned apartment during part of the Athens Olympic Games. And I was rooming with Jeff McNeil, our, our mutual friend Jeff McNeil. Mm-hmm. And Jeff and I, we went out and we bought fans. Right. And then, you know, um, we would take bed sheets and soak them in water. And 
you'd throw those on and have the fan blowing on you, or you would not sleep because it was 42 degrees in that room, Ugh. centigrade, and just nuts. And you know, a couple weeks of that, and you start yeah. getting cranky. I don't know that Paris gets extremely hot, right? It's gets warm enough. W- yeah, warm enough. You're not going to sleep well. So there will be, so, you know, they're giving people plenty of time to figure out how to port in a solution, I guess. So, yeah. Is there going to be a plug in the wall next to the window? Excellent question, right? You can bring in a portable air conditioner if you have to. Kind of defeats their whole purpose, but. Well, that's kind of my point. The uh, high recorded temperature for Paris was 108.7 degrees Fahrenheit, 42.6 Celsius three years ago. Hmm. So just keep that in mind. Could be warm. Could be warm. Hopefully it won't be too warm. But your average high in the month of July is uh, 80-something degrees. Here we are, back on the weather again. Well, it's part of the deal, man. Archery and weather go together. Now, (laughs) that was a great rhyme. Thank Thank you. you. It wasn't intentional, but it worked out. Autumn in Paris is the best time, in my opinion. Uh, If it were up to me, the Olympic Games would be in the autumn every year. Yeah. It's all those professional sports they have to compete with. That's right. the reason why I would don't have it. But I mean, I, it was like uh, the the soccer, the football World Cup being in December. That yeah. was phenomenal. Yeah. What a great time to have it. Yeah. Way exactly. better than the summer. Exactly. So got anything else on your on your agenda for upcoming events? Anything uh, you gotta no. go to? No, I have nothing. Same here. For a little while we've got a little bit of a respite before well, you're going to Arizona Cup? No, I'm going to break the barriers next week. Oh, excellent. So, what a great bunch of folks. Yeah, I'm excited to shoot that, I guess. Um, they told me it was like 102 targets, which I was not aware of. So feels like a lot. But great organization, though. Yeah, really, nice really people. cool people. So I'm happy to be there to support it and do it and and uh, see their their event, which I've never been to before. Maybe get me jump-started on ratting a little bit, too. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point, right? Yeah. So then we've got a we've got that, and then the next weekend is an ASA, and then I think straight to Reading. I don't know. It's all kind of back to back to back, but yeah, on the road again. Here we go. You know, um, the Break the Barriers people have served over thirty five hundred veterans in active duty military. They've got all kinds of partners. Um, they've impacted two hundred million people worldwide. I am one just of those two hundred million. Tremendous, you know, uh, just seeing efforts them, so. that they put. Put out. They do a good job. They and for we get to see them in Vegas know, every year. Yeah, if you go to Vegas, they do a thing there every year, and and uh, they do kind of a pro am type tournament on Friday night. That is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun for us to go. I'm glad they keep inviting me back. Yeah, Bruce calls a big uh, supporter, I guess, of of what they do. From what I understand. So, yeah. Yeah. You know. So yeah, you're looking at uh, all kinds of. Uh, events that they put on you know they do all sorts of stuff archery is just one of the things they do they do gymnastics and martial arts and parkour things like that but archery is a big part of what they do um you know and uh they they reach a lot of folks uh with our sport and i i think that what they do is is a is a really important um they do a lot for people so glad you're participating in that yeah it'll be a good time excellent all right well I'll tell you what, we will uh, do another podcast next week, and we're going to talk about some tuning tips for outdoor season. We're going to talk about a couple of alternatives to consider 
when you're looking at what arrows you might want to shoot, depending on what game you're going to play this upcoming season. And we'll talk about some bow-related stuff, too. So look forward to the next podcast. We're going to actually have, we're going to put our technical hats on a little bit for the next one. I'm down. All right. And Steve, we'll uh, we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Um, next week, we'll see you. <laughs>